this is the podcast series Creditors Corner Legal Talk presented by Smith Devnum, Attorneys at Law. Um, here we explore a range of legal topics affecting businesses and private individuals. So be sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. Um, again, welcome. My name is Garrett Kirkpatrick. I'm an attorney in the firm's consumer financial services section here at Smith Debnam, um, and I will be your moderator. Uh, today's topic of discussion is pre and post sale deficiency notices and what creditors need to know in order to remain fully compliant with the Uniform Commercial Code um, in both North Carolina and South Carolina when sending these uh, notices to debtors. Um, so before we begin, uh, I'd like to note that the information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute any legal advice. Um, instead, any and all information shared is just for the general informational purposes only. Um, listeners should contact their uh, personal attorney to obtain any advice with respect to any particular legal matter. Um, so yeah, with that out of the way, now let's turn our attention to this week's topics of pre and post sale notices. Um, so with us today, we have two, uh, two attorneys, one in our North Carolina office, one in our South Carolina office. Um, our South Carolina attorney is Ron Jones and our North Carolina attorney is John Sparati. Um, so I'll introduce both of them um, in a minute. Uh, Ron is a partner in the firm's creditor rights and bankruptcy section and works uh, out of our Charleston, South Carolina office. Um, say hello, Ron. Hello. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah. Um, also with us is John Sparati, a partner in our Raleigh office uh, in the firm's foreclosure and creditors rights section. How are you doing today, John? Doing well, Garrett. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so today on the, this podcast, uh, each of them will give a different perspective on the Uniform Commercial Code um, and the similarities and differences between North Carolina and South Carolina when it comes to these pre and post sale uh, deficiency notices. Um, so uh, we might as well just get right into it um, and we will uh, go to Ron for our First question, um, again, Ron is in South Carolina, so he's gonna be talking about uh, the South Carolina Uniform Commercial Code and um, everything that has to do with uh, these notices. So Ron, uh, first question, what are the requirements for, post, for a post repossession pre-sale letter in South Carolina? Um, in the consumer goods transaction, South Carolina Code annotated 36-9-613 requires a notice to the debtor um, with the name of the secured party in the debtor, a description of the collateral, the method of intended disposition, either by private or public sale, and a statement that the debtor is entitled to an accounting of the original debt and the charge for providing it, if any. And so just, just briefly, um, if you could explain why, why do we have these notices? What, what are they intended to do? Well, under the Uniform Commercial Code, uh, one of the creditor's remedies is to recover it, the collateral for given a security for the loan, sell it in a commercially reasonable manner, um, and then apply that amount to the debt. That's a 
the main creditor, secured creditor remedy provided in the Uniform Commercial Code all over the country. Um, so in this situation, it wants it requires that you give a notice after you've taken possession of the collateral, but before you sell it to give a consumer debtor, in this case, um, all of the information needed and necessary to um, explain what's being done and um, what the, the secured creditor's rights are. Great. Um, John, are, are any of the requirements for um, these pre-sale letters after a repossession any different in North Carolina um, from what Ron had said? Uh, but like most things involving the Uniform Commercial Code, they are very similar. And so what we would look at is there are some additional requirements when the debtor is a consumer. And a consumer transactions under North Carolina General Statute 259-613 and 614, it requires the debtor's pre-sale notice to contain uh, first the information under 613 is the identification of the debtor and the secured party, a description of the collateral that is subject of the sale or potential disposition, uh, the intended method of the disposition, whether it be a public or a private sale. Um, it must state that the debtor is entitled to an accounting of unpaid balances, the charge, if any, to obtain that accounting, and the identification of the time and place of a public disposition, or in the event you're using a private sale, the date after which any disposition will be made. And then from 614, this is specifically dealing with only consumer goods, a description of any liability for deficiency of the person to which the notice is being sent, a telephone number from, from where the debtor can obtain information from the secured party about how they may redeem the car, meaning how much they can pay to get the car back, or also a lot of times what they have to do to get um, personal property out of the vehicle if they had some in there when it was repossessed. Uh, and then lastly, the telephone number or mailing address, which the information concerning disposition, obligation, secured, available, um, can be obtained. <coughs> Excuse me. Great. Um, so, uh, John, does does this statute require any specific language when it comes to these notices? Uh, North Carolina statutes do not require any specific particular phrasing. Um, but it does provide sort of a potential form to be used. We, we encourage all of our creditors to use that form because it is easier to demonstrate that you complied with the statute. 613 further references, just as long as the creditor provides the information that we just discussed, the notice will be deemed sufficient, even if some of the additional information is provided or if there are minor errors um, included in the notice, as long as it's not misleading. Ron, um, what about South Carolina? Does the South Carolina statute require any specific language for these uh, for these notices? In a word, no. The statute requires that the notification provides information required, as we discussed earlier, and it's sufficient under the statute, even if it provides additional information, as John had said in South Carolina. And the additional any additional phrasing, however, is not required, and minor errors are allowed so long as they're not. Um, misleading. <coughs> Notice in subsection five of um, the 
South Carolina um, UCC, uh, and it provides a form notice, which is defined as sufficient for purposes of the statute if, if you use it. If you use that specific notice, known as the safe harbor notice, um, then it is deemed sufficient on its face. And for that reason, that's the best way to go. Now you said that's the best way to go. I, in some of your experience, um, you know, what are what are some of the issues that can come up if creditors are, you know, just writing whatever they want instead of trying to go, you know, based on the safe harbor notice? Are there issues that arise when um, a creditor wants to use their own language or try and state things in their own way? Um, there could be um, the. If you, if you use your own language or add additional information, then you're going to have to demonstrate as the secured creditor, if, it, if the issue comes up, that you gave, that the information you gave is sufficient under the statute. If you use the statute itself, it's deemed sufficient on its face. Use the form letter in the statute itself, the safe harbor letter in the statute of itself. So what happens generally in these cases where you add a lot of additional information and you don't follow the <laughs> safe harbor letter word for word, then there could be an issue that arises as to whether or not it's sufficient information given that, that uh, complies with the statute and that is not misleading. So either one of those things could um, be become an issue in a case on behalf of a consumer debtor uh, angry over the repossession of um, it's collateral, be it a car, a boat, or whatever it is. Now, again, this one's for you, Ron, to talk about South Carolina. So after the repossession happens and the creditor goes ahead and uh, sells the good, the thing um, that they are repossessing, um, what notice is required to the debtor at that point after the goods or whatever the thing is has been sold? Well, in order to meet the commercially reasonable um, requirement under the Uniform Commercial Code, um, you're required to give notice after the sale sufficient to inform the debtor of, uh, of the outcome of the sale, whether it's a surplus or a um, deficiency. South Carolina Code Annotated 36-9-616 requires a notification that includes the amount of any surplus or deficiency after the sale of consumer goods, which provides an explanation of how the surplus and deficiency was calculated. The statute specifically requires that the aggregate amount of the obligation secured by the security interest under which the sale was made, and if the amount reflects a rebate of any unearned interest or credit service charge, those credits must be there listed. Um, second, the amount of the proceeds of the disposition or sale. Um, third, the aggregate amount of the obligations after deducting those proceeds. The, um, the amount of the aggregate or type of expenses of the sale related to the sale. The amount of the aggregate or type of credit or rebates of interest, credit service charges to which the debtor is entitled. Um, and the amount at the, in the end the, the net amount of any surplus or deficiency. Great. Um, now, John, how 
if you know what, how does this differ for North Carolina? What does North Carolina require um, after the disposition or sale of the goods um, by the creditor? Uh, how does that notice play out uh, in North Carolina? Uh, as I said earlier, like with most things with the Uniform Commercial Code, they're, they're very similar with a few differences. Uh, under North Carolina General Statute 259616B, it requires a consumer-related transaction in which a debtor is entitled to a surplus or a consumer obligor is liable for the deficiency, which is defined under 259615. The secured party is required to give notice with an explanation of the calculation before or when the secured party accounts to the buyer or pays any surplus or first makes written demand on the consumer obligor for payment of the deficiency. And that must be done shortly thereafter or within 14 days of a written request to send the notice or provide a waiver of a deficiency. So that notice uh, is required to have, like Ron talked about in South Carolina, the aggregate amount of the obligation secured by the security interest under which the disposition was made, and if any amount reflects a rebate of unearned interest, credit, service charges, indicates an indication of the fact calculations and the specific dates, the amount of the proceeds of the disposition, the aggregate amount of the obligation after deducting the amount of the proceeds, the amount in the aggregate or type and types of expenses, including your expenses for retailing, holding, preparing, the theme for disposition, uh, processing and disposing of the collateral, attorney fees secured by the collateral that are known to the secured party and relate to the current disposition, the amount and the aggregate type and types of credits and rebates and interest and credit service charges that were given or which are not reflected in that first subdivision one and the specific amount of the surplus and the deficiency. So it's a wordy way of saying they're almost the same. So, John, in your experience, what are some of the, the issues, the pitfalls um, that arise when creditors, you know, fail to provide this notice entirely, whether they, you know, fail to provide the um, deduction for the amount of the proceeds, whether they fail to provide um, certain expenses, um, things like that. What are, what are some of the issues that arise with this uh, post-sale letter for creditors? Uh, the most common failure that we see is failing to either timely provide the notice or to provide it at all. Uh, and at that point in time, you're, if contested, you're more than likely going to get a judge that's going to be, that's will say that you've been deemed to have waived your right to a deficiency judgment against the uh, obligors, especially in a consumer transaction. Um, we'll discuss it some more. There are some provisions, perhaps some minor errors in there. Okay. Um, but the primary thing is providing it and making sure it's accurate. Um, in some instances, if you are providing a substantially incorrect amount or either one way or the other, it could be deemed to be misleading and, again, would be a waiver of your right for a deficiency. Now, we, we have already discussed um, just briefly, um, you know, that there that there are these safe harbor notices in the Uniform Commercial Code. Um, 
Ron, is there a safe harbor notice associated with this post sale um, letter that goes out by the creditors? Um, no, um, no particular phrasing is required and there's no uh, form letter to be used as there is in the pre-sale uh, notice. Um, but if the notice substantially complies with the listed requirements, it is sufficient. Um, as you can imagine, that leads to a lot of um, issues and discussions and, uh, and becomes that become issues and discussions in litigations. It may be a good idea to include in the disposition letter that the debtor may be liable for fees and costs related to a subsequent lawsuit to obtain a judgment um, for any deficiency. Um, but again, as John pointed out, um, minor errors don't matter. Sufficiency is what matters. And of course, determining what is sufficient sometimes is the very essence of the litigation itself. Finally, the statute does also allow a consumer debtor to receive an explanation uh, of the secured accounts without charge within a six month period. Thereafter, the secure party may charge up to $25 for each explanation. I don't, it's, I've never in my practice had either one of those two elements come uh, become an issue. It's usually over, as we talked about earlier, sufficiency and whether the minor errors, if any, were misleading. Now, you know, what are some of the things that, um, you know, we see with the phraseology such as, um, you know, having to put in there for attorney's fees and, you know, maybe there haven't been attorney's fees that have actually been expended at that point when the post-sale, um, you know, notice goes out. Um, are there things that creditors should think about when putting in their, you know, sending out these notices in order to, I guess, just cover all their bases? Um, well, yeah, I've, I've had it come up before, um, particularly in situations where the vehicle is peacefully repossessed without a lawsuit and there's been no real action except by the secured creditor to recover the collateral. The, the costs there are relatively easy to determine. They're whatever you paid the party that you third party you used for the repo fees, any storage fees, any any fees and commissions for the sale if you did it by um, public or public sale or private sale through an auction or something like that. Um, those are relatively simple. The issue that has come up a couple of times when you sue later on the deficiency is that some debtors claim, well, you didn't give me any notice and tell me that I might have been subject to attorney's fees in a subsequent uh, action on the deficiency. I don't think the statute requires that, but that's an issue that comes up um, occasionally. And um, the result of the one that I was involved in that was arbitrated, the arbitrator de um, declined to allow fees because it wasn't in the notice that the debtor might in the future incur them. I don't think the statute requires that, but the arbitrator found that they did. So that's why I had said, and I think it's a good idea that when you're doing it and you're talking about future costs, that you include that there might be costs related to 
uh, a lawsuit to recover any deficiency. Uh, John, is there is there any safe harbor notice or particular phrasing um, required in North Carolina, or is it you know again pretty similar because it's the Uniform Commercial Code and many of the states are similar? You hit it right on the head. There is no particular phraseology required form. Uh, the statute does specifically refer that as long as you're providing a notice that substantially complies with the two statutory provisions that you're that is sufficient, even if it includes some minor errors um, that are not seriously misleading to the debtor. And so there is no real safe harbor provision, but it also leaves a lot of wide berth for how you arrange for your notice and what it provides for. So in your opinion, I guess, what are the, why are these important, John? Why, why are these notices important? Obviously, the easy answer is that they're required, you know, but what is the, what is the main takeaway for why creditors should be careful, why they should, you know, scrutinize these letters when it comes to sending them out pre-sale and post-sale? What is the, the, the general aspect of why these letters are required? Uh, the, the primary purpose is to provide the debtor with clear information on, one, if there is a surplus or a deficiency and when they can expect to have either the money come or the liability, but also to give them notice of all your fees and costs and things of that nature. And it also, I always say that it's just proper accounting because also it's been the nature within the auto industry as a lot of these add-on services come along that when a car gets repossessed and the owner or the, the, you know, the debtor had purchased at the time of purchase a warranty, a service contract, uh, some sort of other service that was used up on a monthly basis uh, after they paid for it, there is a refund for those and they can take a while. So I always like to have in there provisions, sort of kind of like what Ron referenced, that there may be future attorney's fees and there may also be future credits because if there are some significant credits come in, we see it very commonly, especially when a car has been repossessed within the first year. Some of those service contracts and warranty, extended warranties are fairly expensive. So there can be some sizable refunds that come along, but they're going to come a year later. And so we may have to send out another notice updating the information. So all we all we really want to do is preserve our right to a deficiency. I have a lot of clients who have no interest in pursuing a deficiency, but I always caution them to at least attempt to preserve it because it costs you really nothing other than a letter and 15 minutes of time to fill in the information out of the file so that at some point in time, you do want to pursue the deficiency, you can do that. Ron, anything to anything to add about the the importance to these pre and post sale notices? Well, John hit it right on the head. That the nail right on the head. It's that's exactly the purpose of them. Um, there are some um, um, issues that that modern car car sales in particular have that weren't around at the time that the code was written. So these future credits are as important as you know, future liability for like fees and costs. And you got to keep those um, in mind. The underlying uh, theme under the Uniform Commercial Code in exercising the remedy of 
liquidating collateral given for the loan is that the, any sale or disposition of the collateral um, be commercially reasonable. And these statutes, I believe, are designed to be sure that the proper notice is given of the attempt to sale and then after the sale, um, how the proceeds were applied to the debt or obligation resulting in either a deficiency or a surplus. So the takeaway is make sure that your notices are up to date and you know as the as the law changes as the UCC adds things takes things out um, that you're uh, you're talking with your attorneys and making sure that these notices are going out on time and with the correct language um, with all the things included that uh, need to be included per the per the code in each state. Um, do either of you, John, Ron, have anything else uh, that you want to add or talk about? No, just thank you, Derek, for taking the um, uh, charge on this thing and, and helping us get this podcast out. We appreciate the opportunity to um, be involved. Of course. And I'll echo the same. Thanks for doing this and thanks for your assistance. And I believe we've about covered, it's a fairly short subject, but it's an important subject. It is, it is. And thank you both um, for uh, for participating and thank you to the audience for um, listening. And um, if any of you uh, listening do have any questions, uh, feel free to email or uh, contact either of the, the speakers. Um, uh, John, what is your what's your um, email address uh, if they want to they want to send you a question? It's J Sparati and that's S-P-E-R-A-T-I at smithdebnamlaw.com and it is on our i think all of our emails are on our webpage yeah i think so too ron uh just for listeners what's your email in case they they do want to reach out sure r jones at smithdebnamlaw.com awesome um yeah and thank you to all of our listeners please check out our other episodes um that have already been recorded and i'm sure will be recorded um uh, as we we love to do these and uh, keep informing everybody on the the current issues and the the ever changing uh, aspect that is the UCC and the law and uh, creditors' rights. Um, and uh, remember to subscribe and uh, everyone stay well and have a have a good rest of your week. Thank you. <laughs>